Can you talk a little about what the benefits are there? I'm sorry, I really can't. <laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Still equal, I love it. From the Spec Network, this is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. Kaushik, here we are again, my friend. Back again. Yes, we are. It's another day. Uh, morning. Good day for you. What is the time there? 9.45 in the morning. 9.45? Uh, yeah, it's early for you. What time? 6.45 there? It is 6.45 for me, yes. Oh, thank you very much for getting up uh, <laughs> that early. I know it's difficult, especially when you work at a startup where you're working all hours of the night. <laughs> no, but it is enjoyable, especially when we have great guests and great topics to speak about. Mm -hmm. Very valuable guests. Yeah, yes, very valuable indeed. Uh, <laughs> so who do we have on today? So we have a, uh, a close friend of the show who we have um, spoken to and know in various other channels very, you know, quite a bit. Uh, and today, this individual is kind of a expert in the area of value objects and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, he is, you know, he's another Android GDE. He is uh, an instructor on Caster.io, uh, very active in the community. Uh, and with that said, I'd like to welcome to the show, Ryan Harder. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, Ryan, for the, the folks who are not familiar with who you are, kind of your background and so forth, could you give us kind of uh, some information about, you know, again, your background, where you work, kind of what you do now and how you got into Android? Sure. Uh, let me start with how I got into Android. So um, while I was in college, I, I, I was a Mac desktop developer. I managed all the Macs on campus. Oh, wow. And uh, so once I got out of college, the iPhone had kind of been big. So I went into mobile development and... Android was sort of, you know, in its really early stages then. And uh, the company I was at, a consulting firm, um, just didn't have anyone that did Android. So I kind of I kind of took up that, you know, that role and became the Android lead there. And I've been doing it since uh, since 2009, 10 um, in that time frame. And uh, since then, I've gone out on my own. And I actually uh, for the last four years or so, I've been um, I've just been a freelancer. Um, so I work with a lot of different companies on a lot of uh, really cool projects. And uh, yeah, it's been really good. Some of my 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 uh, personal projects, I work with uh, with five other guys down in San Diego and and we do um, we do graphics and and uh, entertainment apps. Mm -hmm. um, one that we're just about to uh, uh, just about to release for the holiday season is is called Pigment. It's a it's a coloring book app uh, for adult coloring. Uh, that we're really excited about. Very cool. I saw Very that. Cool. Yeah, the app looked really, really interesting. I saw you. I think you tweeted it about it or something like that, and it looked uh, super interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really fun. You know, I I wasn't into adult coloring before, uh, but since writing that app, I've been uh, spending a lot of my free time. Uh, you know, just coloring in uh, artwork. Which is a lot of fun. And I remember uh, for folks who've listened uh, to this show for, for some time now, in our last IO episode, you uh, you made a guest appearance and you told us some of uh, the interesting things that you had to say. You also mentioned another app in that. Was that also Pigment at the time? Uh, one of the other apps that we do is called Fragment. Fragment, actually. yes. So th no, that's the one. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. That's a great name. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I hear. <laughs> 
<laughs> but fragment is um, fragment is is sort of for the for the Instagram crowd. It it lets you do uh, not really filters, but but artistic edits to your photos, um, and you basically get to put these. We call them prismatic shapes uh, over your photos, um, which uh, add some really cool effects and let you do some really artistic stuff. Right, right. It is pretty cool. And we'll definitely add links in the show notes to both both of these apps. Alrighty. So, Ryan, Don and I have been super excited about this show specifically because we wanted to talk to you about some topics that we thought were Extremely interesting. These are topics that Don and I like spend hours and hours talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is the world of immutability, auto value, uh, value types, value objects. All of these things are like super interesting. And we've heard that you know a thing or two about this kind of stuff. So we wanted to talk to you uh, about these topics. Yeah, that sounds great. I've been working really closely with uh, immutability and value types and all of that stuff over the last... Uh, probably two years or so. So it's uh, it's a topic near and dear to my heart. Let's maybe start off with just the concept of uh, immutability, right? What is, for those of us who don't know what immutability is, the gray beards and the white beards of our industry love this topic, <laughs> right? They're like, oh my God, immutability is the best thing. We should like try to add that in because it adds simplicity, purity. Can you tell us what, why immutability? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, immutability, uh, very simply just is an object that can't be changed once it's created. It's a, it's a really simple idea, but if you think about a lot of the code that we normally write, I, I think most of us, uh, me at least, when I, when I go to initially write a class, I think of it as mutable, as, as changeable. You can set properties on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does is that adds a lot of complexity that we initially don't think about or maybe unintuitive. So by making things immutable, so unchangeable, if you want to get a slightly different object, you need to make an entirely new copy of it. Uh, there's there's a lot of benefits, namely uh, simplicity. Like I said, is is a huge benefit. And the reason that immutable objects are so simple is if you think about um, an object like a like a credit card transaction, if you can if you can always be changing all of the properties of a transaction, the transaction time, the customer ID, like all of that, uh, it's really easy for that object to get into a state that's no longer valid because there's so many ways that it can change. So immutability offers simplicity in that once you create it, you know that it's always valid. So that's one of the really, uh, really big benefits of immutability. The other big benefit in my mind is that Immutable objects are thread safe by default. Oh. So if properties can't change, you never have to worry about another thread changing the properties of a class out from under you. Right, right. Because it's it can't be changed. If if we kind of take a step back and as, as someone who's maybe looking at immutability as a beginner and we're talking about how objects can't be changed, they may be wondering, well, I can just create an object. Like how do I make a particular Java object immutable so it can't be changed is like what does that look like if i were to build this by hand how would someone go about doing that so this object could be immutable yeah 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 so there's there's actually more complexity to this than than you might think initially no way uh the the simplest step of course is when you have an object if if you sort of follow the normal pojo uh plain old java object path you create an object which has private members. That's important. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then you use getters and setters. So the, the most obvious choice is to 
just remove the setters. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, so that's that's step one. No setters on these classes because you can't set values once they're created. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we move into the things that that people tend not to think about. So first of all, by default, Java classes can be subclassed. Right. So you need to make the class final. That way it can't be subclassed because what you can have is you can end up in a situation where you have this this uh, credit card transaction that you thought was immutable and some either, you know, malicious programmer or potentially some, uh, you know, just a just a developer who's who's maybe not paying attention mm-hmm. um, is going to subclass that to make it mutable. Oh, okay, so you, yeah. So you want to make the class final. Mm-hmm. The next thing you do is you make all of the member variables final. Um, that's a, a helpful step. Uh, that means, you know, once they're created at creation time, you can't, uh, change them. No, no quick question about that final thing uh, for the member variables. Yeah. If the, if the member variable is final, does that mean that I have to provide that value through the constructor? Uh, you do, you have to provide the value at creation time. Okay. Um, and so, so, uh, what that means, depending on, depending on how closely you follow effective Java, mm-hmm. um, that could be at, uh, in the constructor. Um, or it could be in static factory methods. Oh, okay, that's true. And and the other thing that you can do, uh, the speaking of static factory methods, one of the and I may be getting ahead of myself. One of the challenges of of immutable types um, is sometimes you want to you know slightly modify something. You know you want to you want to copy something and change one property. Static factory methods give you a really easy way to do that because you can make um, either static factory methods that take another credit card transaction object or whatever this object might be, or you can make copy methods that will uh, slightly not modify the existing object, but return Mm -hmm. a new object with all of the same properties with, you know, one or a few changed. So you do have to provide, uh, set all of your member variables at uh, creation time, but using things like static factory methods makes that really flexible. Interesting. I do have a question about, uh, I'm sure someone in, that's listening right now says, well, what about reflection? Yeah. Can I change these value, these, these, these types with, um, with reflection? Yeah. So, uh, so that's one of the questions that we get in the, uh, in the auto value community quite a bit. And, um, and that, that is kind of one of the downsides. As far as I know, there isn't a way to uh, prevent changing, um, changing these values via reflection because, Using reflection, you can get you can change the modifier, so you can remove okay. the final modifier and change oh, the value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one quick follow up question that I had: uh, usually in the world of Android, right? Initially, uh, immutability was actually seen as a negative thing. People frowned upon immutability, specifically in the Android community. Why is that? So one of the one of the challenges of immutability is overhead, um, because you can't change values of objects, uh, of properties on objects. That is. Uh, if you want to modify anything, you need to make a new copy, and that adds uh, overhead for the garbage collector, uh, for for just memory management in general. And so that is that is one challenge, and that's one of the things that, um, for instance, on my app Fragment, uh, you can you can modify you know using using your you know your fingers by brushing or or rotating all of that. You can modify all of these settings on an image. And so initially, I tried to use an immutable state object. So that I could record an undo stack, right? That's a pretty, right. pretty mm-hmm. uh, straightforward approach. But the challenge is, is that when you rotate, there's so many settings in there that things are changing all the time, and so that just adds a lot of overhead, a lot of, a lot of 
creating new objects and then letting the garbage collector collect other objects. So there are some cases, um, depending on how frequently your properties need to change, that immutability might not be for you. So basically, if you have a requirement in your application where like because of immutability, you have like a ton of objects being generated, then maybe that's a case where you have to like rethink whether it's applicable. Like, are you actually getting the benefits of immutability? Do you think that's a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's you know, in that case for Fragment, I I made those project those uh, those state objects mutable. I have a decent understanding now of like you know immutability and like you know the benefits, the disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reference, like you said, auto value, right? And like I know for all practical purposes, auto value is something that helps with the concept of immutability, right? So what exactly is this thing that people also talk about called value objects and value types? Yeah, so so a value type is uh, simply an object that's, whose equality, so when you're comparing two of these objects, is dependent on the property value, not the actual object instance. So uh, going back to a credit card transaction, this is a good case where if we were to compare two credit card transactions... Uh, comparing if they're the same instance, like the same memory space in the JVM, it, it it's unimportant. What we care about is if they both represent the same transaction. Mm-hmm. So I like to think of it as a value object. It, it's it's uh, its importance is determined based on what it represents, not its actual instance. Oh, interesting. Okay. Recently, I saw this tweet by Martin Fowler. Martin Fowler, as we all understand, is one of like uh, the white beards of our industry. Uh, usually, if he publishes something, you should go back and read it because he has some very interesting and intelligent things to say. Uh, he recently updated his article on value objects. So, uh, We'll add a link to that in the show notes as well. So for folks who are interested in knowing more about value types and value objects who really want to dive deep into like, you know, the details and the nitty gritty, then uh, make sure you have a, a look at that. Okay, so we uh, we have an understanding of immutability, value types, uh, value objects. Where does auto value fit in? Uh, and I know, uh, Ryan, you've done like some amazing work with auto value. So is Auto value basically just a library that helps us with immutability. Like, is that its sole purpose? So, auto value is a uh, an annotation processor that basically helps you generate a lot of the boilerplate that goes into writing immutable value types. What is the additional boilerplate? Because you said it's only setters and getters, right? Uh, is there anything else that's involved? I'm trying to understand what is the benefit of auto value? Where does auto value come into that picture? Yeah, so so we talked about for immutable types, we need to finalize everything and remove our setters, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for value types specifically, uh, there's a little bit more. So we have to override equals, two string, hash code, all of that. And um, and make sure oh. that when we do compare objects, since this is a value object, that equals is true if the property values are equal, um, and that sort of thing. So auto value will generate all of that, all of that really just tedious boilerplate for you. So you brought up this great point. It just hit me now. You said the difference between value objects and immutable objects, and I think there's like an interesting point to be told there. So immutable objects purely talk about the fact that they don't have direct references. You cannot change the values in them, right? But you, with value objects, there's this concept of like overriding equals and like uh, two string and that stuff. Why would I need to do that again? Just to like refresh our memory. Like, why do I need to override equals? Like, doesn't, if I just compare to Java objects, doesn't that work? Like the equals to method typically should work, right? Or is there something else to this? 
Yeah. So this so this touches on the on kind of the heart of value types. And so uh, the way that Java compares uh, compares objects for the for the default equals method is by uh, the memory address of the object. So if you uh, a really good way to see this uh-huh. is if you look in the debugger. Mm-hmm. If you set a breakpoint somewhere in the debugger and you look at um, you look at uh, a variable that you have, um, you'll notice that there will be there will be a string attached to it that's sort of some nonsensical characters, numbers and letters, like a hash code or something, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's the memory address. Um, and so the way that Java uh, compares these is it compares the memory address. If object one and object two both point to the same object in memory space in the JVM then they're considered equal. But that's not what a value type is. A value type says if object one represents the user Kaushik Gopal and object two, a different object in memory space represents that same user, then they're equal. And so what auto value oh. does is it does that comparison by saying, you know, does does object one's first name match object two's first name and last name and user ID, whatever that might be. Oh, interesting. So it actually goes through the fields, uh, looks at their values in inverted quotes, and then <laughs> establishes that uh, relationship if they are actually equal versus just looking if X456 reference is equal to X123 or something. Exactly. And so one of the things, just just to add on that, one of the things that makes this very important is uh, for both uh, hash code and, and equals, um, equals obviously, if you want to compare objects, you want to make sure that two objects representing the same thing uh, are considered equal. Hash code, a lot of us don't think about, um, but the reason that's really important is if you want to use this object as a key in a map, or you want to use it in a set. Uh, you know, sets can only have one of each object, right? So equality is really important there, and it uses the hash code to determine that. Um, and if you want to use it in, as the key in a map, you want to make sure that when I update, I don't know, the values of Kaushik's favorite things, and I use Kaushik Gopal as the key in that map, it's going to use the hash code to determine that it's updating the right objects. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. There's like a lot of details that go into these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and if, if folks really want to dig into the equals and hash code a little bit deeper, that's in the Effective Java book by Joshua Block. We also did two episodes on that. Back in episode 31, we talk about overriding equals. And in episode 34, we talk about uh, overriding hash code. So uh, we have some content there if folks are interested. So this auto value stuff is super interesting. And I kind of want to go use it immediately. How do I how do I use it? How, how do I install it? Yeah. Is it a jar or or what is what does that look like? How do I get it? And then what? What does that look like? Sure. So as I mentioned, auto value is a compile time annotation processor. So what that means is uh, it's distributed as a jar, uh, and you can use you can use Gradle or Maven or whatever whatever you use uh, to add it. One of the important things to note, though is that, uh, especially for Android with Gradle, most of our dependencies we put in the compile configuration in our dependencies. So you'll say compile and then support library or whatever it is. Right, right. Okay. Um, with auto value, you don't want to do that. And the reason is, is that auto value is an annotation processor that runs at compile time. It's not actually adding its dependencies into your compiled APK, your running app. Oh. The reason that's important is if you go on uh, on something like methodscount.com and, and look at you know how many methods are in there, because I don't want to go over the dex limit. 
uh, it doesn't matter because auto value doesn't actually get included in your final app. So the way that you do that is in Gradle, you'll use the APT configuration, uh, which is the annotation processing tool. And that makes sure that uh, the tool is available at compile time for annotation processing, but not bundled into your final app. And so all of the, uh, both auto value, uh, which is on GitHub, that's a Google project, by the way, on GitHub, in the documentation there, and also the documentation for all of the extensions, they specifically point out, use the APT or provided scopes uh, for this sort of thing. Once you've got it added as a dependency, uh, then what you need to do is add the auto value annotation to an abstract class. And the way that auto value works is you write an abstract class that is your value object and uses abstract methods for the properties. And you simply add the auto value annotation. And the next time that you compile, auto value is going to generate an implementation of that abstract class oh, for you. Okay, okay. So the reason that it does this is that one of the uh, one of the ideals of auto value is that it should be a transparent API, meaning that your users, if you're writing a library or other developers on your team, should never need to know or care that you used auto value to make these value objects. When you create an abstract class, you're effectively writing the API uh, for your value object. And that's what users are going to interact with is your class. The fact that it's implemented by auto value is unimportant to users. One of the uh, drawbacks of this is that you can't use constructors because this is an abstract class. We don't have constructors. So, uh, but that's really a benefit because that allows us to follow effective Java item one, use static factory methods. And so with your auto value classes, you're going to, you're going to, uh, your users will simply call um, a static factory method to provide whatever whatever properties they want. And then the static factory method internally is going to construct the auto value generated object. Uh-huh. So this is a feature, not a bug. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, the question that I had is, um, so this gets built uh, at compile time. Do I check these files into source code? Not the generated files, no. Okay. I guess those are put in the generated folder in the build output somewhere? Exactly. Those oh, are going right, to right. be uh, inside your build uh, your build folder. So just like you know, just like you don't check in the uh, the compiled class files, you wouldn't check in these. Okay. Okay. Excellent. That makes sense. Quick question. You said, okay, I have to use abstract classes, which then means I can't use constructors, which means I would have to build my object, right? Uh, do I have to use the builder methods in that case? And also is, since we're like on a roll with reducing boilerplate with auto value, is there some alternative that I can use to doing that? Yeah. So, uh, so I had mentioned static factory methods, which, which is great if you have value objects that only have a few properties. Right. But as we all know, that never lasts very long. So auto value also has support for builders. And so basically what this ends up being is another abstract class that you annotate with an auto value builder annotation, and it will generate uh, a builder class for you. And this builder, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the pattern, basically allows you to set all of the properties via methods. And then once those are all set, actually build the final object. And what this does is it sort of, uh, you know, there are some other languages out there that that uh, use named parameters when you call a method. Java isn't like that, right? You don't say, 
you don't say, you know, create user, you know, first name colon this, second name colon this. You just list them in order. And that gets really confusing when you have a whole bunch of strings that are required or something yeah. like that. So a builder lets you do those, set those properties by name so that it's really fluent and easy to read. Uh, and auto value will generate that for you. And um, just like the auto value classes, the fact that you used auto value to generate the builder is... Uh, uh, is unimportant to your ah. users. So that's another abstract class that you simply write the API for and AutoValue generates the code backing that. Oh, so that's also a very interesting design goal that the library had. So technically speaking, I could, because it's an abstract class, I could come back uh, tomorrow and say, actually, I don't want AutoValue. I'll just swap it out with something. And my API has not necessarily changed. Exactly. That's, um, that's, that's one of the, the core tenets of AutoValue. And, um, you know, one of the benefits for that, for, for one of my clients, I was writing an SDK. And uh, so we had, we had customers that were using this SDK. And so we used auto value to, to create these, these uh, immutable value types. And our customers never knew or cared. And if at some point um, we needed some functionality, we needed them to be mutable instead of immutable and auto value no longer fits, they're abstract classes, so we can just create our own implementation, and the customer will never know. Ah, interesting. That's 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 pretty slick. One last question I had about uh, the implementation with auto value. Uh, now, I haven't used auto value as much as I would like to, but I have noticed there's mention about this auto value prefix, right? So the generated classes have this auto value underscore prefix. What's the deal with the auto value prefix? Yeah, so the auto value prefix is for the generated classes, the, the classes that auto value generates behind the scenes. But as we mentioned with this, this ideal of a transparent API, that's nothing that your users are ever going to use. Um, gotcha. Or you, when you use that, that class elsewhere, you don't use the auto value prefix. You use that internally in your static factory methods when you want to construct uh, the actual implementation of your abstract class you use the auto value underscore prefix um, and the same thing for the builder. But outside of your implementation, uh, outside of the auto value annotated abstract class, you wouldn't use that. And actually you can't. Um, the classes that auto value generates are packaged private. And this is part of their ah. transparent API so that, so that you know, if you distribute a library that uses auto value to generate its immutable model uh, value types, um, users are never even going to see the implementation because they're packaged private. Gotcha, gotcha. So you talked about a couple of the benefits, mainly about the uh, compile time only dependencies, uh, that it has an invisible API, the users never know that you're using auto value and so forth. What are some of the other benefits? Because you know I've been an IntelliJ user for a long time and I wonder right away, it's like, well, why don't I just use something like the IntelliJ templates? What's what's the difference there? Oh yeah, good question. Yeah, so IntelliJ does a really good job of, of uh, you know, creating templates and generating all of this for you. The challenge there is, you know, so you've made, you've made this immutable value type. You used IntelliJ to generate uh, getters and setters and equals and hash code and two string and constructors, whatever. And then six months later, you need to add a property, right? So now what you have to do is you have to go, you know, add that member variable into the class. And then you need to hopefully remember to delete uh, the existing two string hash code equals uh, and then recreate them. 
And so the challenge there is that it's really on the developer to remember that anytime they update uh, anything in this class, they need to uh, regenerate all of that stuff. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so the auto value ideal is that that's, that's a waste of developer energy. Uh, you know, we can, we have a compiler that, that knows if we can generate all this stuff, we can just do it every time you compile. That way it's always up to date. You never have to worry about forgetting to update the equals method. Oh, yes. Oh man. I can imagine how many times that would bite you. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but you're totally right. If you change that object later on, oh man, it is going to be a pain. Yeah. Cool. So while we're on a roll with the benefits, what are like some other benefits? I know we've we briefly touched on like the thread safety thing. Are there any other points you want to add with respect to thread safety? Uh, well, I think, you know, just to reiterate, um, now that now that multi-threading is so easy, thread safety is a big concern. Um, and basically the idea, the concern around thread safety and value types is uh, if you have a value type, um, say the credit card transaction, and some other thread, a service thread or something like that changes properties on that instance, then you you run into issues. You can never you can never be certain that uh, that this value that I'm showing in the UI is is current. And auto value, since it creates immutable value types, uh, it gives you thread safety for free because you know that if you have an instance of an auto value type, it's always going to be valid. It's it's never going to be out of date. That's true. The immutability coming back to that. Yep. So now there's also something that that you talked about in a blog post last year where you announced the auto value extensions. Yeah. yeah. What what are the auto value extensions? Uh, how do I use them and, and why are they useful? Yeah, so so auto value by itself um, is super useful and uh, and I've been using it for a long time, but it it does one job and it does it very well to generate immutable value types. As an Android developer, that's difficult for me because a lot of my value types that I'm interested in, um, in particular, I want to be parcelable. And that was the big driver behind extensions. Um, and we can get into some of the details of that a little bit more. But basically, the idea is, uh, is, is I wanted more out of these implementations. I wanted to be able to customize it to fit my needs. And so, uh, so probably about two... Um, two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, I went to the AutoValue project, which, as I mentioned before, it's a Google project that's open source on GitHub. Um, and uh, I noticed that there were other people asking for extensions uh, and that idea so that they could extend AutoValue and what it can do. And the alternatives at the time were forks of the project. So there were some other projects that um, that sort of uh, copied the implementation of AutoValue and uh-huh. extended them to specific needs. But the problem is, that's not mix and match, you know. If right, I want right. if I want JSON support and I want parcel support, I have to pick one or the other because these are forks; they don't work together. It's like extending versus implementing, right? Exactly. So what I ended up doing is uh, one summer I ended up working on Auto Value and um, and writing extension support into it. And so the idea here is there are other processors, other annotation processors that you can sort of add on to Auto Value. Um, and auto value does a lot of stuff, uh, internally that's really, you know, unimportant if you're a user, but it, it, it figures out, you know, it doesn't matter what you name the methods, you know, it, it figures out if there's a builder present, like all of that kind of stuff it does internally and it does that really well. So it's very flexible. Um, so what these extensions do is they're able to sort of hook into auto value after it's already figured out all of the details about your annotated class. 
and uh, provide added functionality. So a good example of this, and actually the first extension that was written was um, was the auto value parcel extension. And what this did, like I said, was uh, was add parcelable support to auto value. Um, oh. And one of the things one of the things that I wanted to do with this was I wanted to make it super easy for developers. Right? I didn't want uh, you know if you want uh, parcelable and JSON in addition to auto value. I didn't want you to have like you know this 180 character long line of of uh, of annotations that you're adding. Right? So basically, since this ties directly into auto value, all you have to do to make an auto value class parcelable using the auto value parcel extension, once you have that um, as a dependency, all you have to do is add implements parcelable. And that's it. The extension is going to, uh, to, to know when that is processed that it needs the parcelable bits generated for it too. And it's going to do that all for you behind the scene. And you've literally added two words to your class and you get it all for free. That's it. Huh? That is pretty slick. That is pretty slick. Yeah. That's like magic. <laughs> yeah. That's uh that's certainly the goal. So you I've I've used auto value parcel. Uh so thank you for that. It works fantastic. Uh, I use Excellent. auto value already, so thank you again. Um what are some of the other extensions that are out there that are available? Yeah, so uh so when I wrote extension support, it was, you know, it was uh prompted by parcelable. Um but that was that's not the only thing it covers. It was meant to be flexible. And so so one of the things I did off the bat, uh, not only to make it useful for me, but also to demonstrate this flexibility, was add extensions for JSON and Moshi. Um, they're two JSON serializers, uh, if you haven't used them. Um, and if you work with any sort of um, web, web API, uh, you likely work with JSON and probably even use one of these already. So what those extensions do is they, they generate type adapters so that uh, so that you have a type safe way without reflection um, to serialize and deserialize your value types in um, in JSON or Moshi. So that's a really useful one. Another one is a Firebase data store um, extension, and uh, that one I've I've been using on my on my latest Firebase projects, which is really useful in it, and it lets you easily get. Uh, get your value types from and put them in the Firebase data Ooh, store. Oh, that's fancy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you don't use Firebase, if you use SQLite, uh, as many of us do, then there's AutoValue Cursor. So if you use SQLite, it helps you uh, read your value types out of cursors and write them to content values objects so you can write them into your database. Yeah, and lastly is an extension by Square called Redacted, AutoValue Redacted. <laughs> right, right. And basically... You know they they work with finances, so they have they have a need to uh, if they they log or or print objects using the two string, they want to exclude certain certain uh, values might be, you know account account numbers something like that. So with redacted, that adds another annotation, uh, the redacted annotation that you can put on any property in your auto value class, and that property will not be included in the two string. You know how many times I've written that myself? Oh my god, <laughs> so cool! So like passwords and maybe my music choices. All those we can add redacted <laughs> to. <laughs> I've been using Audio Value for a while, but I recently ran into a couple of developers who are using a different library, and I'm probably going to butcher the name. So correct me if I'm wrong. But it's called Lombok. The, a couple of folks that I've met recently use Lombok, um, and it's from what I can tell, it looks like an annotation processor that does similar things like reducing boilerplate. 
How is this different from auto value? Yeah, so Project Lombok, it does very similar things to what auto value does in its goals. Its its goal is to reduce boilerplate, and it actually does a lot more than just value types. It'll generate a lot of uh, what your class needs, so constructors of different types, um, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. It'll generate for you. What's interesting about Project Lombok is it's it sort of masquerades as an annotation processor, but it's not a true annotation processor in the sense oh, really? that oh. it, it doesn't actually comply with the annotation processing tool spec. Um, so what it does differently is um, the documentation for, for Java and Java C says that an annotation processor can generate new classes. That's all it can do. Um, you can't modify existing sources. And so that's really sort of the, the underlying reason why uh, AutoValue uses abstract classes and provides an implementation as opposed to just letting you annotate any class and providing the, annotation, the implementation within that class oh. um, because that's really forbidden by the spec. What Project Lombok does is it's they've sort of found this hack and they use they use private APIs in Java C and also ECJ, which is the compiler for Eclipse, um, to modify the the AST, the abstract source tree. And so what that does is basically an annotation processor is provided um, an object based representation of your source code. So things like a class object which has method properties on it that represent all of the methods within your class. So an annotation processor has provided those so that it can learn things about your class, your source code, and then generate uh, a new class, right? And that's exactly how AutoValue works. What, what Lombok does differently is it uses these private APIs to actually modify that AST. So uh, with Lombok, you're not using abstract classes and then you get a different implementation. You actually, you annotate the class itself and it modifies that in the compile phase uh, so that by the time it's written to a, to a class file, it actually has the implementation. Yeah, and that's, that's actually one of the challenges and one of the reasons that I don't use it um, is because, because you know, there's, there's some inherent risk there, right? It's using these private APIs yeah, and it's using... Exactly. The annotation processing tool in a way that that is is forbidden. So you know, if you want to use it, that's you know, a lot of people do, and that's perfectly fine. Um, you don't really have to worry about your app breaking at runtime since this is a compile time thing. Right, but right, you still right. risk having to re-implement everything. Right, right, right. So you'll know beforehand if things go wrong. But like the thing is, if they do go wrong, it just involves potentially more work. And also, yeah, Project Lombok has been like around for some time. So like, yeah, there is. It isn't like oh my god, this thing is going to break like next version, right? Like you know, with the new yeah, no. uh, release of Android Studio or something, things are not going to break here. But it is good to know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a great project. I know a lot of people that have used it and I've used it in the past, but, um, you know, that's, that's a personal choice. But you know what I think the true genius with Lombok is? Uh, it's the fact that they have project as a prefix. You create any library and call it project X that immediately adds so much legitimacy. Project Lombok versus just Lombok. I think has like some <laughs> draw to it. So if, if you build something, yeah. project auto value, I'll use project auto value because it sounds pretty legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to remind folks again that we've talked about auto value a lot, but uh, the interesting thing is like uh, Ryan mentioned, auto is like this uh, 
suite of libraries that Google has created for basically just uh, it's it's a collection of just like a whole bunch of like source code generating things, right? So there's like auto value, there's auto factory. Because I remember in a previous episode we talked we touched this and like Don mentioned there's like auto factory, auto service, auto uh, value, of course, and some other things. So this is like a whole suite that they brought in, out of which auto value is one that most of us Android developers have found tremendously useful, especially with some in conjunction with an extension like Ryan's uh, for auto value parcel. Yeah, it's a it's a great suite of tools and we actually use uh some of the other tools, you know, all of my extensions use auto service. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I've used that before too and auto factory. Very cool, very cool. Ryan, this th- wow, this is amazing. And I think we can keep going on and on. Like I just have like so many interesting questions uh, to ask. Uh but I figure at some point you'll also have to get to work, so we don't want to keep you uh, on thank you so much for uh, coming on today's show and uh, like helping us understand so much about auto value yeah thank you yeah thank you for having me it's it's been great being here if our listeners want to reach out to you uh, with more questions or like if they want to ask for ideas and stuff what's the best way they can do that yeah so the best way to reach me is on twitter uh and i'm r harter on twitter r-h-a-r-t-e-r perfect perfect uh and you also have a blog that where you time and again write some amazing posts i do yeah you know <laughs> It seems since I started doing Caster, I haven't been blogging as much. <laughs> but uh, I wonder if there's someone we can talk to about that, <laughs> right? So my so my blog is my blog is ryanharder.com, and uh, in addition to Caster, there's also uh, some really good information about auto value and uh, and lots of other Android coding topics at ryanharder.com. And I hear and I hear uh, if folks want to actually meet you in person, there's going to be an opportunity soon. There, there is. Uh, so I, I do go to a fair number of conferences and, uh, and I have to travel so far to them that I thought it was about time that we had one here in Chicago. Um, so, so I've been working with, uh, with some other great developers and organizers and, um, uh, this April, uh, 20th and 21st, we're going to be hosting Chicago Roboto, which is going to be the, uh, the first Android developer conference in Chicago. Wow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that should be a lot of fun. We've got, uh, uh, great keynote speakers lined up in, uh, Jake Wharton and Jesse Wilson. Who are those guys? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You may have heard of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, always a great time. And so two day developer conference in Chicago, you can go to chicagoroboto.com to uh, order your tickets and and submit a talk and find out more information. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for coming on today's show. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, that's all for the show today, folks. Uh, We will catch you in the next episode. That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit all of the fragmented episodes ourselves. The amazing Sarah from Spec helps us with production assistance and wraps our final mix. Our theme music and ad music is produced by the cool cat, Alan Taylor. You can find more episodes of the show on Pocket Casts, Google Play Music, or any of the other great podcast players in town. Our website is fragmentedpodcast.com, and you can find the links to all the stuff we say on our website. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.